Your fever is high and the pressure to log in at work is too. But when you finally decide to take care of you, there's Instacart. Just because that one perfect coworker of yours is attending all meetings, camera on while she's sneezing, coughing, and aching, doesn't mean you have to do the same. Take it from us. Trying to stay on top of things will only get you further behind. Instead, get everything from tissues and teas to cough suppressants and comforting soups delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. If anyone needs anything, they can just redirect their questions to that one perfect coworker. Worker of yours. Uh, Trey Calloway is back uh, with an update on our scintillating conversation from months ago. Just seems like yesterday. It really does, actually. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, time flies. But I, part of the problem when we talked was I don't even think you knew at the time when your new show, Rush Hour, would be debuting. We had no earthly idea. Yeah, you were guessing early 2016. It turns out now, end of March. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm posting this on the day of its premiere. Fantastic! And so since then, you were you just in pre-production at that point, or had you actually shot any episodes? Gosh, yet? I don't think we'd shot anything yet. I yeah. think we were still on the boards. We were still conceiving the season to come. Right. So at the time, I made you defend yet another. <laughs> You're going to make me do that again, are you? No, no, no. Okay. Because you did, and because because <laughs> I'm I'm at, I'm going to tack this on to the to the, our original conversation. Okay, People can hear it for themselves. Good. But you defended quite deftly. Thank you. The idea of bringing this concept back, and it's not. A bad idea, simply because a buddy concept and that specific, you know, uh, scenario was kind of great. It just kind of depends on who you get to take yeah. those. I mean, Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker were pretty iconic They're in amazing. those roles. They're amazing. But, you know, our two new leads, uh, Justin Hires, who's a brilliant African-American comedian, um, who is playing the Detective Carter role, and John Fu, who is an extraordinary martial artist and gifted actor in his own right out of Hong Kong. The two of them are really putting a whole new burst of energy into those roles. They're not by any means impersonating Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker. They're giving it their own unique spin, still true to the character and the spirit of the movie franchise. But, you know, having now had the benefit of watching those 13 episodes, which we were just conceiving the last time you and I spoke, um, I just think it fires on all cylinders. It is it is exactly what you would hope for from a Rush Hour series. And honestly, I think it's something that uh, represents a really great opportunity for CBS, our network as well, because there's a reason they're the most watched network in the world. They have these... Nobody does crime procedurals like CBS, right? right? Nobody puts a and question mark. has great comedies yeah, on it. No question. And so... Um, but that's where we we are merging the two, yeah. and and you, if you are the kind who loves the question mark over the body and trying to solve a puzzle every week in the form of a crime procedural mystery, we've got you covered. If you were the type who really just likes two engaging guys who are riffing on each other in a convertible uh, in sunshiny <laughs> Los Angeles, then we have got you covered. Not to mention some of the supporting, you know, some of our other series regulars, you Wendy, know, Wendy Malik. Wendy Oh, how awesome is she? Oh, my God. I told her on the first day I met her that I've had a writer crush on her since (laughs) I don't know how long. And so to be able to put words in her mouth, not to mention uh, Amy Garcia, who's uh, brilliantly funny, and and Paige Kennedy, who, you know, it's so funny. The first time I brought my kids to set, uh, they they walked right past Justin Hires, John Fu, Wendy Malick, Amy Garcia, and my oldest son was like, Dad, 
Paige Kennedy's on this show? Do you know how many followers he has on Vine and Instagram? And, and you know, and, and he's like a huge YouTube sensation. So, you know, the, the, uh, the, the sum total of it all is that we've got this tremendous family. And uh, I think people are going to, you know, as a, as a, at the very least, as a counter program to, and we may have talked about this a little bit last time, but just a counter program to all those amazing premium cable shows, which I watch too, but which tend to skew really dark and make yes. you feel really bad about yourself. Yes. Like Rush Hour, you can just sit down in front of the tube or the phone or wherever you consume your media and just enjoy yourself for well, 42 minutes. Well, when we talked last, I had been uh, catching up with The Walking Dead. Mm, and that's I, right. And that's I, was, right. I was in a serious <laughs> funk. Yeah. I mean, I literally, I think I hadn't showered in days. Well, I'm back at it, not Walking Dead right now, but I'm binge-watching Daredevil, which oh, is yeah, super dark, is great, super awesome. My buddy Doug Petrie is one of the showrunners of that show. It's incredible, but it's... It's but, dark and gruesome and and sometimes hard to watch, yeah. but great. So I need something a little lighter than that. This so, would be counter programming. Uh, so all right. So enough pimping the damn show. Yes. Jesus, shut up. Did uh, I mention it's Thursday night, March thirty first yes, at ten p.m. on CBS on the day we're posting this? Okay, people know it. <laughs> Good lord. Tonight on CBS. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, do that again. Tonight on CBS. Well, they could save a lot of money on hiring <laughs> Joe Cipriano to do their spot, um, but. But your experience uh, must have been a little lighter, too, because you just came off back-to-back two pretty dark, intense shows that also had just, let's face it, troubled histories that you kind of had to deal with personally. Yeah, no, I mean, just the content. You know, revolution was uh, post-apocalyptic feudal America fighting uh, on itself, not unlike the America we live in right now. And uh, (laughs) You had no idea, did you? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and then, of course, uh, The Messengers, uh, which an experience I truly loved, but was, again, you know, sort of a doom and gloom biblical mythology driving it. And uh, and so just to be able to, to, to sort of put that kind of content aside and just write some comedy just have some fun was uh just on a personal selfish level uh, an absolute breath of fresh air for me over the last year is writing funny harder for you um, i mean for you does it come more naturally let's let no, me put it that I, way. I would like to think that there's always been humor in what i've written but uh you know what i loved was being able to sit in a writer's room that had you know, a, a good number of just experienced, dedicated comedy writers who had never played in a dramatic sandbox. And and so I was on the other side of that spectrum. So we were able to meet each other in the middle, inspire each other in different ways, learn from each other. Um, you know, this is one of my favorite things about working in television in general is the collaborative medium it is. But but to be able to sit in a room with bona fide comedy writers with real comedy creds, you know, I could sort of uh, coast on their coattails a little bit. But we all learned from each other. It was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm just and, – and now that I've flexed that muscle officially on CBS, <laughs> I, I want to uh, – I got to keep doing it. You, know? you don't even have headphones on. You're just enjoying <laughs> hearing yourself say it. Well, so let's say, obviously, Rush Hour is going to get renewed mm-hmm. and it'll be in its seventh season or whatever. And you'll have the choice of either kind of staying on and being, you know, the king of the mountain or moving on. Uh, From so, your lips to Mr. Moonves's ears. So it's impossible to kind of say what your next step will be. Yeah. But um what 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 you probably for anybody who's been a part of a show or a showrunner, there is that that thing that you want to bring that's yours that's 
completely yours. It's yeah. your idea. Is that kind yeah. of what you're putting out there right now? Or do well, you I, have... I just finished two brand new pilots. One is co-written with a with an old dear friend of mine, and uh, and the other I did on my own. I've just turned them into the uh, you know the representative powers that be, yeah. and uh, and uh, the feedback seems to be extremely effusive and enthusiastic. So you know I've got new material that's going out on the market that you know that would be. That would, as you suggest, that would be, you know, the the major score would be to for my next gig to be running my own thing. Yeah, the one that uh, you brought to the table. Exactly. And uh, look, just from a business standpoint, is this one of those things where the industry sits – do they wait to see what Rush Hour does? Does that have an impact on on what happens to Trey Calloway stock? Oh, absolutely. You think so? Well, it, no. It's just it, fairly it's, or unfairly, they're waiting to see if that's so, how it works. Yeah. You know, I mean, it all comes down to numbers at that point. So, you know, between Warner Brothers, our studio, and CBS, the network, you know, they they're all deeply invested in the show, certainly, and they all they all definitely want it to succeed. But this is that this is probably, if I had to pick one, the most difficult aspect of of the career path I have chosen, which is <laughs> recognizing when I have controlled every single thing I can possibly creatively control and then stepping back uh, because I can't control what happens next. Yeah, it, and that, even at your level, because I've had collaborations, I've worked on scripts before, I have two pilots that I know of that somehow disappeared in the giant gaping maw of CAA <laughs> and have never heard from them, except every I, two years, it's kind of like a Halley's Comet thing. It's like, hey, somebody read your script, the new regime read it, they really, it's at the top of the stack, and then... So I can go as far as saying my path in Hollywood, writing for Hollywood, there are two pilots somewhere at CAA, and, yeah. and, okay. I have, and they they might have slipped into the quicksand of whatever, Listen or they might be sitting on somebody's desk somewhere. There's worse places to be lost. But even at your level, you have that you have to go through that same thing, which is kind of detach yourself. There's literally nothing you can do to push anything through that pipeline until somebody says, hey, let's talk. This is literally the moment that I just uh, <laughs> more fully appreciated a few days ago. You, know, you and I were speaking uh, off mic about uh, how I've recognized uh, during this brief moment of downtime after we wrapped the season that I've forgotten how to relax. And <laughs> and uh, but, but, uh, but a few days ago, I found myself at, at LACMA here in L.A. just walking through their permanent collection and at a certain point, I caught myself alone in a room filled with uh, uh, Renaissance-era paintings, and I, I began to just stop in front of each painting, and, and I would just look at the painting and go, hmm, yeah, I like that. And I might stare at it a little bit longer, and then I would just walk on, and then I would just walk, I would blow right past, you know, certain paintings like, I don't like that. I don't like anything about that. I'm not even <laughs> interested enough to stop and contemplate it for one second. And in those moments, I just suddenly realized, oh, my God, this is exactly not, by the way, not to compare what I do with uh, the significance of Renaissance art that should be hanging on a wall at a museum, but it's the same exact subjective process, you know, where, and, and so I have to now count on people to stop in, in their living rooms or, again, on their phones or wherever uh, and, and, and be compelled enough to, to not only watch an episode but enjoy it enough to watch the next and the next. Yeah. And I have to – we all have to count on a whole lot of people doing that. Well, uh, if that's the case and if uh, there's any chance at all that uh, there's going to be a season two so that 
the the local Los Angeles disc jockey Shotgun Boogie Tongue Night Smoke gets featured. That's my <laughs> character's you, name, baby. by the way. Okay, let me, yeah. I'm going to jot that down. Shotgun Boogie done. Tongue Night Smoke. Uh, <laughs> I am so writing that episode. <laughs> um, then everybody has to frickin' watch Rush Hour. Do you want to do the uh, promo again? Rush Hour premieres Thursday, March 31st at 10 p.m. on CBS. You're going to take the disc jockey gig <laughs> away from me. You're going to cast yourself, you no, son of a bitch. No, because I don't look as good on camera as you do. No. Morning show team. There you go. Oh, and we interview the cops because they're looking for somebody who's oh. like uh, obsessed with radio and there's some sort of, yeah. I'm right. so in. <laughs> I'm so in. It's, it's, uh, it's Trey and uh, uh, it's Trey and Night Smoke. It's, <laughs> no, I got to no. come up with a good name, no, too. No, there's got to be a good sidekick uh, right. thing. Stay tuned. If you're listening to this still, stay tuned. <laughs> That's right. No, you got to wait for season two for the reveal. <laughs> well, dude, I, I'm, I'm excited. I know I'm going to be watching... Um, if I can figure out my CBS Now on-demand thing uh-huh, by then. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and, uh, I'll see if I can get somebody to walk you through those instructions. Sure. Maybe I'll get the 30-day free trial. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, g- good luck on everything. And it looks fantastic. And also uh, just uh, the future ahead. And uh, all your USC students who are listening to this mm. are rooting for you as well. Mm. And uh, anytime you want to... You know, come on the big show. You're welcome. Man, for Snark Monkey, I would do virtually anything. (laughs) All right. Well, then (laughs) use your uh, big time announcer voice to say our signature line, which is get a monkey. Get a monkey. Dude. Hired. I always dreamed of doing a movie across the street uh, at, at the, the Galleria? old Galleria, yeah, which was really tremendous in its final days. Yeah, yeah, I remember that too because it was it was spooky. It was spooky. There was like maybe two small shops that were ma and pa shops that somehow had a lease that you know extended to the bitter to the end. very end, right? And then there was the you know whatever it was, the Macy's or whatever that was the like, Robinson's flag. May Robinson's May. That's yeah. what it was. But everything else was abandoned. Yeah, it slowly started to shut down, and it was it it reminded me of like Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, hundred percent. Because it was really quiet and weird in there. Because <laughs> uh, because the food court was something we back in that day when before we were yeah. making any kind of money. The food court was a place we would always hang out. And well, just yeah. a bunch of us just well, it was mocking the, it people. Was the legendary Galleria. It was know? the Galleria. I saw movies there. I got my ear pierced there. I, I mean, you know. <laughs> Things happen there. <laughs> I can tell. I do have this little Rain Man thing about I can remember every movie I've ever seen. I can remember where I saw it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I I don't know why. That's good. It's just part of the that's the thing ingrained in me. Yeah. Usually I can tell you who I saw it with. Oh, um, and I saw Pulp Fiction and Saving Private Ryan over there. Wow. I remember it very well. Gosh. Some of the last movies they ever actually showed. There, yeah. I think. Now I don't know what it is. It's never been a mall really since then. It's just it's, some weird. No. I constantly run into people over there who are going, where is the mall? Yeah, and it's it, like, oh, there you, isn't one, really. you pulled in and parked for no reason. <laughs> um, 
Hey, reminiscent about the Sherman Oaks Gallery, everybody. Yeah, so, yeah. how long have you lived in Southern California? Because you are—are you an Oklahoma native? It will act. Well, yes, I am born I'm a and Texas raised. boy, by the way. And um, I don't know if we're at it's odds. A good thing we're on the other side. Okay, other side all right. You're going to leap across, and no, I no. moved out pretty quickly after high school. Hey, well, so did I. Okay, I, I, I actually was born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But it will be 30 years next month in Los Angeles, so far longer than I was ever in Oklahoma. Isn't it weird when you reach that point where yeah. you have been somewhere else longer than where you grew up? Yes, yeah. that's a. To me, that was always a weird feeling because I, I don't, I, you know, I don't wear my Texas pride on my sleeve necessarily. But mm. but I, it's a place I'm, I'm from. It's you know? part of you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. you can't get rid of it as much as I try. Where where Tulsa, Oklahoma? Tulsa. So I find that you know when when I get a couple of beers in me, the y'all slip in and. Uh, <laughs> And then usually right around the fall, I start to, it's a weird, there's a weird nostalgia vibe that happens where I start right. listening to more country music. Really? I do. And, and I, and I, and I, 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 I have, I've always got a toothpick. Like there's some, there's just. Seriously? Things, yeah. It's a weird thing. And I think it's. Why the fall? Uh, well. Because there's actual seasons in I Oklahoma? there's seasons that you miss. Mm-hmm. Also, my birthday is Christmas Eve. So, uh. So a lot of positive memories associated with that around the holidays and the like. Yeah. You know, and that, that take me back mentally and emotionally to Oklahoma. Yeah. That's interesting. So. I have none of that. <laughs> I, 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 don't miss, I don't miss Odessa, Texas. I mean, my apologies to the folks back in Odessa. I do not miss it at all. Well, P.S., I, I am a card-carrying sap. So, you know, uh, I, I tend to get nostalgic <laughs> over... over I know. do do that, though. I do have this thing about the autumn where there is this weird melancholy mm-hmm. that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. I revel. I like melancholy. <laughs> I love talking about... Uh, one of the people who was in this very seat not too long ago, David Isaacs. Oh, yeah, I know, um, David. We both teach at USC. That's right. And we talked about the comedy in- initiative and stuff. And yeah. we talked about Cheers and that theme song, uh-huh. which is, I think, iconic for so many reasons, but part of it is because it is not a big, fun, peppy theme song. No, it's you're not, right. hey, come in the bar, no. let's have a drink. Dun, no. dun, 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 dun. It's this melancholy... There's a little bittersweet edge to it. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think that's what gives it something special. Yeah, it sets a tone right from the beginning. So I'm a big fan of melancholy. I'm right there with you, man. <laughs> now, I think you and I also have something else in common, if you can say that being from that part of the country is in common, even though we are mortal enemies. Yeah, well, we're from the heartland, man. Um, is that the heartland? That's the heartland. Is it really? It is. Because I always thought the Midwest was considered more the heartland. Mm. And, and do you consider Oklahoma the south? No. The southwest? I, I consider, no. The heartland. Texas is... Is its own unique animal. Texas is Texas. Oklahoma, by virtue of being dead in the center of the country, yeah, in the heart of That's the, the heartland. United States, it's the heartland. All right, I I I think that Oklahomans have more of a sense of what Oklahoma is than anybody else I in the country. I think you may be right because everyone else tends to avoid it. Yeah, and just or just not really know what it is. Yeah, it's a place to pass through on I forty. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I, I believe that at some point in your uh, illustrious career, you were actually a radio professional. I was. I was on, speaking of Tulsa, uh, Tulsa's 74, 74 KRMG. Oh, see, I was even going to ask you if you could still do the, yeah. the break and the, what, what was, what was KRMG? KRMG still is, uh, it, it is a 100,000 watt AM stereo station that uh, is considered uh to it's beloved by Tulsans as sort of a a a news source. So okay. when when things go wrong, 
when there's tornadoes, when uh, which is a, every other day, every other day, when there's a big college football upset, when there's <laughs> which is every, <laughs> which is every <laughs> other day. Um, uh, KRMG is sort of the go-to source, and they used to play music back in my day. So I, I so you were a I, music I, DJ. I was spinning records, yeah. and and it was all live, and it was before you know all this digital fun. Yeah existed um so you have the shared experience i think of having to put the uh, for us it was the noah weather radio you were have you would have to break in every time there was a tornado warning yeah you were always watching you were always watching the ap wire and there was a very clear you know set of instructions (laughs) that you had to follow when there was a a thunderstorm watch then a thunderstorm warning then a tornado watch and a tornado warning you know and a hundred thousand watt flamethrowing am meant that you had like 90 counties that you had to cover well that was the best part of it all is because I was a graveyard jock. So at night, you know, AM signals tend to skip far distances anyway. Yes. So it was not just Tulsa, nor just Oklahoma. Those signals would skip to Arkansas, <laughs> Kansas, Missouri. I would be getting all sorts of calls from strange people in the middle of the night. But generally speaking, yeah, we were all focused on Tulsa and what was happening there. Now, were you, did you get interested in radio in in high school, or early on? Or uh, what, you know, what early you on, my, yeah. my family was in advertising. My father uh, directed and produced a lot of television and radio commercials so did my mom and so and then I had done some voice work and and I think that's where I really got the bug um I I had done some voice work at a local place in Tulsa actually I did a lot of work with uh Jeannie Triplehorn who was a Tulsan and was on the local on the local local uh, AOR uh radio station there she was on the radio she was known as Jeannie Summers then I did not know That's that. That's right. So uh, I did voiceover work with her and, and a few other folks, and then I sort of at least thought, uh, oh, gee, I want to be a DJ when I grow up. And then my father, <laughs> to his everlasting credit, um, got me in a room with uh, uh, an extremely talented and um, well-known voiceover artist out here now. His name is Ed Hopkins. Uh, but at the time, he was a DJ at, a, at, a, at an FM station in Tulsa. So my dad arranged for me to spend the day with Ed. Uh, which was sort of a genius way of convincing me never to be a disc jockey. <laughs> but I still wound up doing it anyway. Um, I wound up doing it anyway right before I, I moved out here for, uh, for well, college. Well, when it's fun, I mean, it, when you're young, it's fun because you're getting paid just to, to scream over records. That's I mean, right. you were like top 40 DJ, is that yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if it was top 40. It was a weird – Yeah, I always uh, liken KRMG's programming at the time to your iPod shuffle. Yes. So, you know, you would get a <laughs> yeah. Sinatra song followed by Naked Eyes, followed by, right. you know – I uh, believe they referred to that as a full-service yeah, radio station. Yeah, there was something for everyone. That's nothing like that as far as I know anymore. Uh, mm. That's great. But, yeah, you're right. You're. It's good to do it when you're young before it becomes, you know, your – you're 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 one of those other jocks yeah, like who, like me yeah. <laughs> thanks trey all right um well no i i mean you and i have a, a similar kind of uh, parallel path for me uh, being in odessa kind of another isolated place but also wanting to do something creative yeah. um i was fascinated with radio yeah i still love it and um i was drawn to that because it was hard to 
do what I really love to do, which, I mean, I was making Super 8 movies, yeah, you know, in yeah. the alleyways of Odessa, Texas, yeah. substituting for war-torn Germany in my yeah. World War II epic, stuff it's like that. It's a shame that. we didn't find each other earlier. <laughs> Should have been really a... But, but it, I, I ended up going to film school at USC, so, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, it was just a creative outlet at yeah. that point. W- at what point were you writing or thinking about, were you thinking about acting? Were you thinking about directing? It was what... a little bit of all of it. Uh, writing since I was a kid, yeah. uh, old enough to pick up a pen, but... Um, but partially through, again, through watching what my folks did, you know, uh, I sort of fell in love with production. Then like everybody else who's ever sat across from you and, and uh, given you one of these interviews, uh, I can tell you exactly where I was in the summer of 1977, standing in line in front of the Fox Theater in Tulsa using my entire allowance to see Star Wars 11 times. And, uh, and so that was... First what, day? The, oh, there on opening yeah, day? Yeah, absolutely. Do you and, remember how you heard about it? Yeah, I do. Isn't it strange to think about now how well quickly things become viral? And I wonder I wonder if how many other people had that experience. I mean, we're roughly the same age, I'm guessing, and um and for me it was uh begging my parents to stay up late one night to see the Tonight Show, which they would rarely let me do. Right. And for whatever reason they let me do it that night, but what I didn't know was that night on the Tonight Show as a as a publicity stunt in the middle of uh, Carson's monologue, Darth Vader walked down the middle aisle of the studio. I have no memory of that whatsoever. And I I was like, "Who's that?" <laughs> and it just blew my young mind. And yeah. so then I just began to gather as much information as I could. It was it was something that it was pure word of mouth, mm-hmm. even though the. The machinery had begun to promote it. You're right. But I don't remember seeing a trailer. No, I don't no. remember seeing any. There was no uh, pre, you know, they didn't have any of the merchandising done. No. I, I don't think they, 20th Century Fox thought that they had a hit on the No, hands. not at all. So, but but there was a buzz on it. There was Unlike, a buzz. People I were remember. talking about it, but I'm not sure how or why. The, the science fiction nerds in my high school were talking about it, yeah. already knew about yeah. it. And the and somehow to the rest of it, it sounded cool because on that opening day in every town in America, mm. how long was the line? Uh, it was enormous. It yeah. was halfway around the block, and and it was that way every single time I went back to see it. Yeah, but I waited gleefully. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you know there was that, and then um, and then the real big clincher for me uh, was in my junior year of high school. I guess it would have been roughly. Um, uh, Francis Ford Coppola uh, filmed The Outsiders in Tulsa. In Tulsa. And um, and so, you know, I'd done school theater and a little bit of commercial work with my dad. And so, like everybody else, I went and auditioned. And I got a role as the Soch in Concession Stand was my part. Ooh. And, uh, and uh, I remember I, your work. Yeah, well, I have one line. Do I have you? A, I have a line and a close-up. Oh. In The Outsiders. I'm a Soch in Concession Stand. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, yes, with Diane Lane and C. Thomas Howell and, and, and that, just that experience of, you know, going through, uh, we had to go to stunt school for a couple of weeks and come in some rumble scenes later in the film, but then just being there on those couple of nights at a drive-in theater in Tulsa. And it's all the, the, I mean, that it must have been a fairly big production for for Tulsa. Oh, it was huge. I mean, it was and, a, a, kind of an independent film for Coppola. It was, but it was also a beloved book. Yeah. And so, you know, everyone everyone knew what was happening. So and, you uh, felt the magic of just being on the set. And, 300%. And kind of seeing what was really going on. You had been around the commercial production thing, but, but this, this was, was a, a big different league. deal. Oh, yeah. wow. So that, that, that sealed it for me. So, you know, I went to, to University of Oklahoma for a couple of years and then... 
got into USC film school and came out here and started all over again. Now, what year was that? USC. Can you say? Do you want to say? 1985. Okay. All right. That was the year I had already moved on. And I said uh, 30 years ago. So and I've you got to work in the, quote, new uh, building. Well, that's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> I, I tell my students this all the time, you know, because uh, it was when I moved in, it was brand new and, and it was this amazing new film school and literally the paint and the carpets, you know, everything was yeah, brand new. Yeah. And then now it's bicycle parking. Yes. It's, and it's, uh, there's a real new film school. It's been relegated to, oh, here, music department, you can have this now. <laughs> it's a hand-me-down. Because exactly. when I was there, I was there on the day that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and Robert Zemeckis uh ceremoniously broke ground on on your school oh, yeah. with a shovel and wow. uh, everybody crowded around Spielberg Lucas took off and nobody knew who Zemeckis <laughs> was and he was standing by the fountain by himself at near Norris going does anyone want to talk to me because um, I, I cut a pretty big check to be here yeah um, <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, you have seen, you obviously are there a lot. That new place is spectacular. Yeah, it's the house that George built, but it's really, um, it's really spectacular. And I and I, I also remind my students, uh, you know, th- look USC. I look. I recognize I'm a member of the faculty. I'm obligated to say this, but I truly believe it's the greatest film school in the world. Uh, you don't have to go there to be a success by any means. There are not only other great film schools in Southern California, but all around the world. And you don't have to go to any of them to be successful. But but as film schools go, I wouldn't trade in that experience I had at SC for anything. And I see my students uh, every semester benefiting from it in the same ways that I did. But that new facility is so over-the-top extraordinary that I, I, I will often catch myself saying, wait till you guys find yourselves working at Sunset Gower or, you know, <laughs> CBS Radford or Rally, you know. Yeah, see, know. I, had the, I had the flip experience of that. For us, it was if you can actually make something in these bungalows and in this environment, right, right. then you're going to be fine yeah. when you get out there. But these kids don't have any idea how good they have it. Yeah. I mean, come on, those Sumner Redstone TV stages, they're a hundred <laughs> times better yeah. than anything else in Truly town. ultra state-of-the-art yeah. stuff. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. But is the is the essential, I don't know, I don't want to use zeitgeist, mm. I have to, I, is the... Is, is the energy still the same? I mean, it, I think it is the and creative I, energy that you get from young people coming in wanting to do what they say they want to do. Is it still feel the same? Yeah. Here's the thing. First of all, it never fails that I've been teaching there for ten years now, and it never fails that the 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 day that I'm teaching, which is generally Tuesdays, on, on that night, it's always there's a million things going on at work, and. It's the worst possible time for me to have to get in the car and drive downtown. Yeah. And I go down. And impart and I, wisdom and, to young and minds. Then I go down, and then it never fails. I walk into the room on those days and I'm immediately greeted by, you know, 12 uber talented, completely unjaded, wide eyed, optimistic senior writing students who remind me all over again, over and over again, uh, why this is the greatest job in the world. Right? It's nice to know they're not. Jaded. I, 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 you, you never know about new generations because there's, they're inundated with so much stuff. Yeah. And there's so much content out there, and there's, and there seems to also be a wave of of cynicism that can creep in. Um. And it, but it's nice to know that they're really energized about. I want to make 
good stuff. I want to make great content. They are. They're completely passionate, and that passion is very infectious. And so I always wind up taking it back with me for a couple of days. And And until the real world, Hollywood (laughs) begins to crush your spirit again. I'm beaten back down, and then I claw my way back downtown. (laughs) You're on a roller coaster ride, aren't you, Trey? (laughs) It's amazing you didn't bring a bottle of something with you. Oh, no. That's what antidepressants are for. (laughs) So, what, um, so, so was writing always kind of the focus when you got to SC? It was, it, well, it wasn't at first because I went to, I went to, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I, I thought I wanted to, I knew I wanted to be in film and, and then I was at OU for a couple of years and they had a tiny film department, which was pretty much one class. Uh, (laughs) but I remember shooting a 16 millimeter film for that class and somewhere halfway through the, you know, uh, forgive the ancient reference, but somewhere halfway through the A and B rolling editorial process, I realized wow, I really hate this part of the process. <laughs> I really hate this. But what did I enjoy the most in all the production process? What did I enjoy the most? Coming up with the story, yeah. writing the script. That was that was the most fun. So by the time I was ready to apply to SC, um, I applied uh, directly to the, the, the writing division, uh, which was then pretentiously called filmic writing. But, um, Ooh, was it? Really? Yeah, it was. Um, but anyway. <laughs> Why did uh, they change that? Yeah, that was ugly. But, uh, but uh, you know, then, yeah, then it was four years of, uh, of work in the writing division. And, and getting to work with, and this is the, one of the things I find fascinating about USC in particular and the film school, um, is that it, 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 there, there are cycles to it. Um, and, and I came in at a, fortuitously at, at the end of one of these cycles in, in terms of the faculty. And there were there were these extraordinary, for lack of a better way to put it, lions in winter, who were the faculty, and the these were men and women who had, who had worked on some of the greatest films in history, you know, and uh, and f- f- for the most part, most of them were no longer teaching a year or two after I left, and and then not long thereafter were, were no longer with us. Um, but just amazing people. So I benefited greatly from, you know, getting to one of my greatest mentors was William Kelly, who uh, w- won the Oscar for co-writing Witness, uh, which oh. is regularly taught in film schools yeah. as, you know, one of the one of the great quintessential screenplays. screenplays. Yeah. Um, you know, so I got to I got to learn at his feet, you know, or Abraham Polanski, who was one of the Hollywood 10 blacklisted screenwriters maybe the angriest man I've ever met, <laughs> rightfully so, but but just an incredible fountain of energy and experience. And Stuart Stern, who wrote Rebel Without a Cause, was one of my professors. And uh, and then rather than, you know, go buy the Sid Field book that everyone does anyway, uh, I, Sid Field was one of my professors. And, <laughs> right. I, you know, I, I, I took his class. So it was that kind of thing where, you know, you just – you felt like you were running around the feet of giants, but uh, but it was tremendous. And and I think uh, to the great credit of of the administration at that particular school now, what they've really focused on, I think, successfully is a new generation of professors who are all active working professionals. And it may make it difficult to schedule classes from time to time because it's like, oh, I got to be on set. I, I can't actually be there Tuesday. But you know right. what I'll do? I'll bring my students to set with me. It's that kind of thing oh, that, that see, I think amazing. the students really benefit from greatly now in ways that I, I never got to. I can say that I, I, I missed that experience, and, I, I, and I'm not bitter about it because I thought I had 
for uh, 75% of my experience at USC was amazing. Yeah, yeah. But I had too many of the guys who were long past yeah. having been in. And, and uh, when I arrived at ni- in 1980 as a freshman, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I mean, the, the Lucas factor was as high as, as anything. Sure, of course. I, I mean, it was in full-blown. I mean, USC was the new rock and roll. That's right. Because people had just started hearing mm-hmm. about film mm-hmm. schools. So I had guys who had, you know, worked on a season of Gunsmoke mm-hmm. and and couldn't get a job anymore yeah. and they could care about you know, less about, you know, Lucas and those guys and yeah. and you kind of had to be a rebel to break through what was going on then. Now again, I got I had some amazing professors. I did get the chance to witness. I mean, I was in the same room with Ruben Mamoulian mm-hmm. at one point, who that's you know incredible yeah. to be in his uh, Clint Eastwood and Don Siegel came yeah. for a screening one night of yeah. uh, a couple of their films together. Uh, I got to meet Spielberg. I got yeah. to you know tell Zemeckis uh, that I uh, knew who he was. <laughs> he was very happy. You finally arrived, Bob. What was interesting though is that Zemeckis did say something to me. He's, he he, and I don't know that everybody would agree with with this, but his experience was that. Uh, making movies at USC was infinitely tougher than it was once he got into the industry that he actually seemed to have, if you can make it through that, he said, you can, you'll be fine. Right. It's like boot camp. Yeah. And I think to at least his experience was that it was very tough to get anything approved and push forward. And that you were kind of fighting against uh, whatever parameters they set on you. But if you could get, if you could make something special out of that, then you could survive in the industry. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Well, fight on. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, enough SC talk. I'll go, yeah, yeah. come back around to it. But uh, uh, what kind of stories were you gravitating to as far as writing? I mean, you mentioned Star Wars, but but once you started to, I, I found that my experience was once I got past the stuff that was kind of very, you know, adolescent uh, uh attractive to an adolescent right right i began to get very pretentious and and um really fell in love with some pretty heavy filmmakers at that Mm -hmm. point which is what you do in college yeah what started to resonate with you at that point well it's interesting um because i was not one of those students at usc who went on my parents credit cards you know I, i i worked the three four jobs to be there and one of those jobs which wound up becoming a career for me for a while until i started writing full time was working for an ad agency, and um, and it was a local broadcast promotion firm here in L.A., and I started working as a copywriter and then eventually became creative director of the place after I graduated. Wow, okay. But, but, but that could have been your life. It, it could have been, and in some ways it still is, and yeah. I'll get around to the point of all that in terms of my writing, but the but but this particular broadcast promotion firm, we did a lot of theatrical trailers, and we did... Um, uh, I don't know if you remember at the time, but KTLA, the the local um, CW affiliate, was right. at the time it wasn't affiliated with anyone, and it was simply known as KTLA, your movie station. And That's they just right. ran a bunch of old movies. And, <laughs> that was uh, basically their Saturday and Sunday programming, that was and, it. and a lot of weekday stuff. That yeah. was it. And so my job, uh, one of my first jobs working for this particular agency, was uh, was watching all these old films, and and then pulling clips from them, audio clips, and then writing radio commercials. And uh, and so it became its own film school. I wound up, whatever I didn't see at USC, I wound up seeing, you know, everything else. Because they would have this. these catalogs from all the major studios, oh, just yeah. their, all their back catalogs, all the good and bad. Stuff. Good and bad, absolutely, yeah. all things in between. And so 
I wound up watching all that stuff. And, and then through my continued work uh, at that agency, and then I had a freelance company where I did taglines and, and trailers for movies. In fact, I wrote the trailer for the re-release of Star Wars. I wrote the line, see it again for the very first time. Um, I, uh, uh, okay, now we'll play the tagline game. I did the tagline for... Uh, yeah, give me the tagline. Uh, okay, okay. Uh, 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 I won't get this. Home Alone, the family comedy without the family. Home, Home Alone 2, he's up past his bedtime in the city that never sleeps. The Mask from Zero to Hero. Uh, uh, oh, and then I won, a, I won an Entertainment Weekly unofficial Oscar for best tagline for Predator 2. He's in town with a few days to kill. <laughs> um, anyway, so I did all this. Trey, and the, you remember these. I remember. What? Well, because I, here's why. So uh, the whole long-winded point of this is you can never wash advertising out of your blood, mm. right? This, is, this was the family business. It's what I knew and loved. And, um, and so as a result... When you ask me what kinds of things, you know, inspired me or which kind of directions did I want to start writing, um, it was it was varied, but it, there was always there was always some little voice in the back of my head that would say, um, whatever this idea is, uh, regardless of the genre, uh, could you walk up to f- could, could you could you could you describe it in 10 words and could you walk up to 10 people in the street and get them excited about it with those 10 words? Um, and so probably to the great consternation of my representation over the years, I have been the kind of guy who, you know, I, I like to say life's too short to tell the same story over and over again, but my credits reflect it because I've written, you know, kids animation. I've written Westerns. I've written sci-fi. I've written crime procedurals. You know, now I'm writing an action comedy. Like, uh, I'm all over the place. I'm sure a shrink could take a look at all of it and find the, you know, the appalling and obvious emotional threads that are in all of it. But, <laughs> but, um, but I, for me, it 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 always begins with what whatever the genre is. Um, it always begins with you know, can I can I name this tune in five notes? Yeah. Can I, you know, and that became the true, that it it was a really beneficial, I wouldn't have realized it at the time, but it was a really, in retrospect, really beneficial uh, impact of doing all of that advertising. And it's something that I still have a great amount of respect for. I have many friends who were still in that business and, and, and even when I'm running a show, you know, when I was doing the messengers, I would get sent the promos and it's common for writers, especially in television to get, to get the promos for, for their work and be be pissed frankly it's like they're giving everything away (laughs) but i've been on both sides of that equation and and nothing excites me more than uh, a good promo um even if it gives everything away i don't get you know it's it's okay it's it's okay as long as it brings eyeballs yeah and gets someone's interest and so i i've always whatever i'm writing there's always that little voice that's in the back of my head well there's something to be said for that the idea of being able to do something with an economy of words, which is yeah. what great taglines or any good advertising is yeah. about, is is can you you know get a major thought across in a short amount of time mm-hmm. and do it in a way that hasn't been done before, mm-hmm. and you're you're trying to you know hook people in economy of drama, brevity of wit. I'm always and I approach not just the project that way, whatever it may be, but every scene within it. It's right. like what is this scene? What's the What's the shortest way to describe to myself what right. this scene is about? And that goes to character's dialogue of, you know, do you have to say everything and get it out expositionally, or can you say it with a thought or a look or a or a, a an action or whatever? Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I'm 
assuming that's what you're talking about, is yeah, that translates yeah. directly to, you know, even when you expand it to 22 or yeah. 44 minutes. No, that's right. Yeah. Wow. So I start, you know, I mean, in terms of professional beginnings, and I, I like everybody else, I wrote my first script for, for the Cormans. Uh, it was oh, actually really? not Gene Corman, it, or not, not Roger Corman, rather, but his brother Gene. Um, what was uh, the title? It was called Texas Tea. It was about a terrorist takeover of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve along the Gulf Coast of Texas. With a reference to the Beverly Hillbillies exactly. theme song. Exactly. <laughs> that is spectacular. And, uh, yeah, that was the first. But, um, you know, and then and then I started selling screenplays from there. Most, of, well, pretty much all of which were never made because, as you know, you can make a good living in this town writing things that no one ever actually gets to see. Right. Uh, and then were right, you doing all this while you were doing the advertising? You still had this, uh, this... right around the time of the Corman sale. Uh, I signed with William Morris at the time, and then that was the end of my uh, my tenure as a creative director at this particular ad agency. And so I did a little bit of freelance stuff work or freelance work after that. But because you could have gone, I'm very comfortable. I'm making a good living. I'm doing this thing that has been going on for ten years. Yeah, yeah. Did you reach? Uh, a breaking point with that or or was it just this is the thing I've always wanted to do? It was and- the brass ring that brought me out here in the first place yeah. and I wanted to at least try to reach for it. And uh You knew you could probably go back if you had to. That right? that was always a possibility and and you know, I was grateful to have the work that I had in advertising and it certainly helped me pay off those USC student loans. Oh God. Um, I'm going to, I'm almost done. (laughs) (laughs) I still sometimes wake up from a nightmare that another one has arrived (laughs) to do. There will be a bill. I forgot one. Hey, by the way, we forgot. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, sorry. Uh, No, that's okay. I, 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 so, so where in that process, as you're basically making a living, not seeing anything come to fruition, what was the first great gig? Uh, it happened at once. Two things happened at once. Uh, I, I, had I had written, uh, had sold an original pitch to Columbia for a big science fiction epic, which was called Nightingale One at the time, and uh, and I remember pitching it to Peter Goober and his whole team at Mandalay, sitting around a conference table, a bunch of strangers I didn't know, and semi sarcastically, after I finished my pitch, the last words out of my mouth were, "Oh, by the way, this would make a really killer TV series too," and everyone sort of laughed politely, and then they hired me to write the movie. So I wrote the movie based on my original pitch, and uh, and um, long story short, uh, four drafts later, it went nowhere, mm. as many movies uh, do, as the case with most, and um, it went nowhere. But somebody who'd been sitting in that original um, pitch called me up and said, "You know, you made that joke at the end of the pitch about it would make a really good TV series, but I thought you were right." And so I took the liberty of sending that script to UPN, which was a network that existed at the time, <laughs> and uh, and they think so too. So they want to meet with you about adapting it into a pilot. So that happened, but at the same time it happened, because the feature process, the development process had gone well, I got another call from Columbia saying, would you like to write a sequel to I Know What You Did Last Summer? So I said, of course. And they had me come in with a pitch. Uh, unbeknownst to me, they actually hired two writers at the same time to write two completely different You were competing drafts. against two other guys. So Stephen Gagan, Academy Award winning Stephen Gagan, wrote one script. And, and then I wrote another. And neither of us knew about the existence of the other guy. And um, 
so those things happened at once. So my first movie, I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, was was produced. And at the same time, the pilot that I adapted from my original feature at UPN got picked up to a series, which became known as Mercy Point. So uh, that was that all happened at the same time, really within the same year. So that that's when I sort of blew out of the gate, I guess. Yeah. So there's your... Hey, this Hollywood thing is easy. I can, I can do movies. <laughs> I can do this all I can day do long. TV. I can yeah. just knock them out. Yeah, exactly. But you were on you were on the road at that point, and you became a working writer. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me, kind of tick off some of the other things that started happening. Well, at yeah, that point. what happened from that point? You know, Mercy Point uh, was a sci-fi medical drama, twenty-third century space station hospital. It was usually referred to as ER in space by the critics, right? And, uh, but it was an enormous ensemble cast starring Joe Morton and 500 other actors. We got the crew from the X-Files. We shot in Vancouver. It was a massive space station set. It was incredibly expensive. It was a, probably about five to ten years ahead of where it needed to be for visual effects. Um, and so it was incredibly expensive. Uh, that's one of probably the biggest reasons why it didn't last long. Yeah, because UPN was not exactly cranking out the hits at that point. They weren't, and they were having regular affiliate revolts every upfront because, you know, they, they, they reinvented themselves a lot. Right. And, uh, and that particular season, we were, we were supposed to be a companion piece to Star Trek Voyager, I think, but the affiliates had a revolt, and, and they wanted more of, what was it called, Brandy. Uh, the yeah the oh the, uh, Moesha the brand yeah, yeah that show you're talking to the voice of the UPN spots for a good year before Danny Bonaducci took it over <laughs> there you go that, that was me going right after an all new Moesha oh that is you that it, is hundred percent you it's Malcolm and Eddie oh and that's right they only picked the whitest guy on radio in Los Angeles <laughs> to go do the Malcolm and Eddie and Moesha spots that's fantastic yeah that's yeah. fantastic I just met uh, Joel Madison who created Malcolm and Eddie and uh, on a radio show. And that's so funny. It's all coming back. <laughs> yes. Anyway, point is, um, uh, when uh, when it was over, although it was short-lived, it gave me the bug in, in, in all the best ways. and uh, Specifically for episodic for television. television. Yeah. yeah. And and although I, I, I still work in features, I still love features, if you held a gun to my head, I would absolutely say, oh, give me, fee- give me TV, give me TV. Isn't? that what everybody's saying right now? I guess so now. It didn't used to be that way. No. uh, I mean, certainly the area you're talking about, it was, I want to get my movie made. You know, you're talking about, I mean, it probably still happens, but how many people, how many studios are paying three guys good money to write a script to see which one works out? Uh, That's just not happening anymore unless it's a $100 plus budget kind of monster film. It's very true. It's very true. But my experience, I mean, I, 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 I recognized it for what it was. It was a lotto win. Literally, the first pilot I wrote went to series, right? That never happens. And so as a result, I came into the process bass backwards because I hadn't, I hadn't staffed. I hadn't worked my way up, you know, and suddenly, you know, here's my first show and it's on the air and, uh, and I'm running it. And I had no earthly idea what I was doing. I mean, every day was filled with horrific, nightmare-inducing, out-of-body experiences where I would be looking down at myself saying, what are you doing? What? You, you don't know how to run a room. What, well, what's your, what, I mean, what your, your temperament seems to be very even-keeled. I mean, have you always kind of been 
a rather calm person. I, I, yeah, and, I try, but you because know, because that, that you have to have a temperament. You have to you have to make a, a million decisions. Yeah, that's you your have job. to manage people. Yeah. you have to tell people their their baby is ugly a that's lot. Right. That's right, and that's right. and and you're dealing with egos, everything from talent to writers. I mean, yeah. there's there's so much going on there, and you can either be the asshole, which you don't seem right. to be, or you yeah. can be the guy who takes a dagger every time he has to say something That's right. negative to Well, somebody. and the good and the bad thing about that particular experience is I didn't know any of that yet. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so this was all brand new. It was new. all new. And, I, you know, there is the old adage, fake it till you make it. But then there's also prove it or lose it. And right. so I, I was in that place of, like, really, I had no idea what I was doing. But it gave me the bug. And then what I wound up doing for television was developing a lot after that because, uh, you know, I was just on a variety of people's radar for development. And, and so – I, I think, you know, at this point, I think I've I've sold somewhere around 18 to 20 pilots. So, the, But a lot of them were in those years that followed Mercy so Point. So you were just going and pitching all the time. I was going time. and pitching all the time. I wound up doing Which a, is a whole different skill in itself. A completely different skill. I wound up uh, doing a pilot with Tim Burton uh, called Lost in Oz and just a bunch of other pilots for every other network. And, and then ultimately what happened was, and I remember this moment distinctly, uh, I'd kept a foot in the feature world. I'd worked on some other features as well. And, and I was uh, helping a team of writers, one of whom is one of my dearest friends, uh, do a production rewrite. Very short turnaround, a lot of pages, but a production rewrite for a movie called The Spiderwick Chronicles. And so uh, I, I was holed up in, in an office working on that. And at the same time, I had set up two different pilots at two different networks. And so both of those were due. And so I was working on those. And I was just by myself all the time, right? At the end of this long process, neither, neither one of the pilots went, by the way. And Spiderwick was Spiderwick, but I was just a part of a team. Um, when it was over, though, I remember calling my agent at the time at ICM and saying, Hey, um, I can't stand myself anymore. <laughs> like, I, I cannot be alone in a room anymore. I, I have to get into, and I, I, this was in television that I was talking about, like I have to get into a room of other people and surround myself with some talent and learn some stuff because I'm stagnating in my own little pond. Here. But that, well, that's pretty self-aware. I mean, what, what kind of writer are you? Are you very focused, disciplined, productive, I, jam I, through stuff? I think so. I think so, but, but I'm also very... I'm a people person. I, my wife calls me a golden retriever. You know, I am that. Like, I, you just keep throwing that ball, and I'll keep running out for it and bringing it back as many times as you, I can. You need some down. sort of, but I need that. Forth. I need yeah. that back and forth. I need some collaborative energy, and um, and so that's so. So my agent at the time said, uh, "Well, uh, great timing because I just got a call from CSI New York, and they're looking for somebody to come in." And I'd never watched the show. I'd never watched really any of the CSIs. How long had uh, it, was CSI New York it new? Was in or? its fourth season okay. at that point. And, uh, and I had written, I did write, uh, I wrote a freelance episode of Supernatural in its first season. And, uh, and that sort of took on a life of its own. It spun off these recurring characters, which are still popular with the fans and have been around almost every season since. So I'd had that experience, but I had really not worked on a staff at all. Because um, you can't count my mercy point quote unquote show running experience. <laughs> and so so uh so I went in and the greatest thing about this particular interview was they didn't want to hear because they were in their fourth season, they really didn't want to hear any pitches of episodic ideas. 
They said, uh, have Trey come in with uh, just interesting factoids about New York City and the world of science and medicine. So it was a great, like, fact-finding mission. I spent a couple of weeks in libraries and just coming up with crazy stuff online and then just went in and pitched it. And I got the job, and I was there for six years and 130 episodes wow. of CSI New York. And and I always say this to everyone. It's funny, the show that I'm working on right now, Rush Hour, one of our other writers, um, Crystal Ziv, was a longtime veteran of CSI Miami. And she's in agreement with me about this, which is that – CSI and that the way that entire franchise worked and all of the shows, it was the ultimate showrunner training school. It's what I needed, frankly, before I did before Mercy, Mercy Point. Point. So the good news after, you know, six years and 130 episodes of killing people, uh, the good news was coming out of CSI New York, I finally got it. Like I understood what needed to be done. So uh, it's a, it, it, is it that it's a well-oiled machine because they had it established or what, what, what was it about? You know, part of the culture that was that was and I don't know if this is true of other shows, but certainly true of the CSI franchise. And I think so, uh, you know, up to this day um, is that they would always the women who ran those shows had this amazing habit of taking even baby staff writers and throwing them immediately into the deep end. So when it was your episode, you were producing that episode. Whether, you know, and it, it was sink or swim. They would just throw you right in. And and if you were lucky enough to be able to swim, you were learning so much in that process uh, that by the time, you know, by the time you graduated from that franchise, you knew how to make those little mini movies every week. So it was the prove it or lose it school. A hundred percent. Yeah. So I finally got that experience. So that was really invaluable and uh, wouldn't trade it for the world. Can you tell me the uh, most unusual medical thing that you ended up uh, oh my <laughs> having gosh. to you know it's funny um, i remember well what i can tell you is one of the very f- one of those that first group of weird facts that i that i shared in my first meeting on the show i wound up using in an episode later that shot at usc which was part of the fun for me but um it was a story about uh uh, how in the 1960s uh, at JFK there was a, a cargo worker for a major airline who was basically on the take. And he would, when cargo uh, planes would arrive and unload stuff onto the tarmac, when no one was looking, he would crack open containers and just pilfer contents. And so one particular ill-fated day, he went to crack open a container with no idea of what was inside. And he mistakenly let out all of these South American parrots. And and so years went by, and to this day, there are these flocks of wild parrots that take up residence at a couple of different universities in, in Manhattan. And uh, and so I shared that story, and so we wound up using that as a as a classic sort of CSI evidence trail when uh, you know there was some feather evidence or whatever that led us to a, a Brooklyn fictional Brooklyn college. Um, but we wound up, God bless him, I remember, I'll never forget watching the set deck people for CSI New York hang dozens and dozens of fake parrots in the trees at USC, <laughs> probably cursing my name the entire time. One thing but, that I kept thinking about, and I, I've had other people on this pod, on a group podcast mm-hmm. talk about the that franchise, is that at some point, 
with there were nine CSIs on yeah, the air yeah. at one point, and you would think you would run out of possibilities. Well, that you would just have to start making science up at one point. Well, you know, we tried to be, and we always had science tech advisors, and sure. we had you know, on our show we had a twenty-year veteran of the NYPD. We also had a, a, a former district attorney. So you tried to, you know, we tried to keep things plausible and believable and, and as realistic as at possible, at least grounded in some sort of reality. Yeah, 100%. obviously you had to embellish. Yeah, you know, but some the tr- stuff. you you touched on. The trickiest part of working in that franchise was, you know, again, I came in season four of of CSI New York, but, you know, hard enough to come into a show that's, you know, been four seasons or more and come up with ideas that everyone in the writer's room hasn't already heard. But when there's two other shows in the franchise that have been on almost twice as long, every idea you come up with get shot down. And and it got to a point where by the time I'd been there six years, I always felt bad for the new writers who would come in and they would always come in on day one with their notebook full of ideas. And then they would just be gunned down and bloody by the end of the day. Yeah, we did it. We did it. We did it. Is there a CSI historian in the room who's just, who's having to cross check? What happened was there was this, there was this magic number and an email address at Bruckheimer that you would have to call. The minute you came up with an idea or any kind of new science or technology, you would clear it. You would you would call it in or email it in to oh, that so number. Oh, so there's like jockeying for position. And you'd be jockeying for position because they were always these autonomous fiefdoms. We never crossed paths with any of the other writers. Right, on any you of weren't the other sharing shows. other we than crossover shows. No way. Yeah, yeah. and even that was like, yeah. <laughs> that was like kissing your cousin. And and so we really like. It was very competitive, yeah. and so it was super That's hard to come funny. up with stuff that hadn't been done. By the yeah. time we got to the ninth season of CSI New York, much like all the other CSIs, I know from talking to writers who worked on the other shows, we were just like a tired ring of carnival ponies marching in a circle. <laughs> well, I was going to say, at some point, obviously you had a good experience there, learned a lot, yeah. but writing a procedural, it, despite the fact that you're scrambling to come up with a new thing in right. every episode – uh, that format, that template, must have become a little yeah. just rote after a while. Yeah, I mean, the good news is you can import it elsewhere later, <laughs> and I'm certainly, <laughs> you know, in part doing that now. But, um, but yeah, you know, it, it's the the great thing about CSI uh, is that you know it was it was always true to itself. It always knew what it was, and mm-hmm. it was on a network. That still to this day knows exactly what it is and what its viewers want. I think that's why CBS is as powerful and strong and successful to this day as it is. Yeah. Um, and so- and really maybe the last major network that's still producing television in the way that it is. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're the one, the, the, the three-camera sitcom, yeah. the, the, the procedural, the standalone episode, yeah. you know, show that sort of thing. It's yeah. very now. You, so you went on. You worked on a revolution. I went to revolution. Yeah, Eric Kripke, who created Supernatural and who became my friend through that process of working on Supernatural, had wanted me to come in season one of Revolution, but I was still on a deal at CBS, and so uh, I finally came in. Actually, before I went to Revolution, I worked on a on a one off reality series with Anthony Zyker called Who Done It for ABC, All which right. was a complete kick and a lot of fun. Um, cause Zyker's got so much energy. Um, so that was fun. And then, yeah, I went to revolution, which was a completely different experience. Yeah. You really have been <laughs> jumping around in genre and, and type of show and, yeah, yeah. You know, which is great that you haven't let yourself get pigeonholed. I guess you could have early on, especially with, um, I s- still know what you did. Yeah. 
could, there were a lot of offers to guy. write slasher movies after that. And, right. But again, and it, from working in advertising, I'm sensitive to the power of the niche. I, I understand how much easier it makes your agents. It makes it easier for them to market you when sure. they can keep you in. And I also have friends who have been tremendously su- successful that way by just staying in one field. But did you make a conscious effort to I, make a left turn I after every did. job? I kind of did. I, I, I'm always, and I did the same thing, you know, uh, just before I started on, on what I'm working on now. I, I, I've, I very, I always try to make a concerted effort to, to push myself in a new direction. Like, What is the story that I haven't told yet? So that's what made Revolution really appealing to me, you know, um, the sort of nouveau, uh, nouveau American Western, um, you know, soap with with all these interesting genre fringes uh, that we could explore. It was it was a lot of fun, and um, and you know, we shot in Austin, Texas, and and uh, that was uh, an amazing place to film. And the writing staff of that show. It was truly tremendous. I, I count some of them now among my closest friends in L.A., so that was a great experience, too. But it was tough. It was a tough show to write for. And then um, The Messengers. Then The Messengers. Yeah, literally, this is a crazy story. So we all thought we were coming back for a third season of Revolution, and uh, and and I was on a deal that was going to require me to go back. So we were, you know, I, I you really were had set. taken very few meetings, and you always take a couple just in case. And one of those couple that I'd taken was for a pilot called the messengers. And, um, but I really honestly didn't think anything was going to come of it. So I remember saying to Owen O'Donnell, uh, who created the messengers who had had a very similar experience to my mercy point of it all. Like he wrote a pilot to get staffed and then suddenly it was shot and then it was in contention for, for series. And, and so I recognized that look of terror in his eyes uh, as brilliant as he is. But I remember sort of basically saying to him, gosh, I, I hope I get a chance to work on this. I probably won't, but just know that I'll be watching because I enjoyed the pilot so much. But really thought I was coming back to Revolution, and uh, and we were supposed to come back um, on a Monday. And so that weekend prior, I had promised all of my kids that over hiatus – because I'd been such a crappy dad <laughs> in the year previous on Revolution. I said, listen, when, when, when I get to hiatus, you pick a place in the United States that you want to go, and we're, we'll go for a weekend. So my daughter wanted to go to Coachella, so I took her to Coachella. <laughs> and and uh, my youngest son wanted to go to Seattle. I took him to Seattle. And then uh, my, my middle child, my, my oldest son, wanted to go to Chicago. And so I said, great, we're going to go to Chicago. But the way the timing worked out, it was literally the weekend before I was supposed to go back to work. We get on the plane, 30,000 feet in the air on our uh, uh, ascent out of L.A., and for whatever reason, I decided to get the Wi-Fi. And to be honest with you, I had been sort of quietly dreading, although I loved the people, I'd been kind of quietly dreading going back to work on Revolution on that Monday. It was just, it was, it was, it was tough, and I wasn't sure how effectively I was contributing to the continuing telling of that story. Really? I, I knew that I loved the people and I and I and I knew that I had a place there, but I I just was itching to do something different. Oh wow. And uh not that I by the way, I never take a job for granted. So, you know, I, I'm always more than happy to uh, be telling someone's no, but story. Creatively but you weren't feeling fulfilled for some reason. Creatively I was I was yeah. feeling a little juiced at, yeah. at least. Um so we're we're in the air. We're thirty thousand feet up. For whatever reason, out of boredom, I decide to get the Wi-Fi, and I get the Wi-Fi, and suddenly my phone lights up with 
messages saying, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry to hear about revolution. Oh, my gosh. And so I, I realized, oh, my God, I, I've just been fired at 30,000 feet. <laughs> I had no idea. Which, by the way, is a great title. If yeah, you ever. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so that was a new one. And so then I spend the next half hour sending my own condolences and thank yous and all that stuff. And then I sit back quietly next to my son and I'm thinking, well, I guess we won't be spending quite as much money in Chicago this weekend. And, <laughs> and I guess I got to find a job when I get back. And then as we begin our initial descent into Chicago, my phone lights up again. And suddenly it's all of these. As soon as you land, you got to call the uh, you got to call CBS Studios. As soon as you land, you got to call the CW. And it's all about the messengers. And by the time basically, long story short, by the time I checked into the hotel, my poor son is in the car on the way to the hotel, looking out the building. Look, look at that, Dad. Look at that. And I'm working the phones like a bad Hollywood cliche. You, you said we were going to yeah. have time together. Exactly. And the cats in the cradle and the silvers. <laughs> anyway, uh, every TV writer listening right now knows that song exactly. by heart. Anyway, exactly. point is, by the time we check into the hotel, I've been hired to come on The Messengers. So that was an amazing story, but uh, it was a tremendous experience. Um working with Owen O'Donnell and putting together a staff and which we, which we did here in Encino and then the show shot in Albuquerque. We got most of the breaking bad crew, uh, incredibly talented and, 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 uh, dedicated and passionate crew. And then an amazing ensemble of actors. Um, and that was honestly just heaven on earth from page one to fade to black 13 episodes later. Uh, it was, and, and in part it was because, I was no longer that dumb kid running Mercy Point. Right. I actually knew what I was doing, and I actually knew how to get the job done. And so the trauma of actually having to make all those calls and make all it, it became sort of second nature to you. Yeah, at that point. it really did. And and I I am endlessly grateful for that opportunity, and I am fiercely proud of what we accomplished. And although you know we're only two episodes away from from the end of the series it wasn't renewed ultimately for a second season it was uh it was just really a super satisfying ride yeah you see so you looked at your watch like <laughs> the countdown is continuing yeah no well will the, you know will the that, fans be uh, by the satisfied? way that's the promo part of me it's literally <laughs> yes. two more only two more episodes <laughs> um will the fans be happy I think they will. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about, you know, it draws from a biblical mythology in the book of Revelation and tells the story of seven complete strangers who suddenly find themselves with a new destiny that they never expected, regardless of their differing belief systems. And and um, and so it's a story of reluctant prophets. But the way that the way the first season mapped out, I mean, frankly, we had mapped out the first seven seasons, but the way the first season mapped out. It is its own self-contained adventure, and so they'll have a sense of closure. They will absolutely a have a degree. sense of closure. There's a there's a little. Well, I'm not going to. I won't spoil anything no. else. No. Okay. But uh, I, I I hope I believe in my heart of hearts they will be satisfied. Those those diehard viewers who have thank God been watching. So here we go with a complete left turn again yeah. in your career. Yeah. And. Uh, We'll get the chance to plug it here. Don't worry. Have your tagline <laughs> ready. Uh, the the trailer's already been out there. Yeah, yeah. But uh, tell me now, because this is the kind of thing you'll get because this is the world we live in. Yeah. And so if, anything you do mm -hmm. is immediately wide open to interpretation, criticism, uh, trolling, negativity, and that of cynicism course. I mentioned before. Of so defend to me mm -hmm. the reboot, yes. revamp reintroduction of characters introduced in an incredibly popular mm -hmm. action comedy from mm -hmm. how many years 
years ago. Uh, it's going back a ways. Yeah. There've been there've been a number of those films. Right. But uh, I, we're this, talking about Rush Hour. Yes. This is an easy task uh, for me to accomplish yeah. in terms of defense. Because, and, and, um, well, it is for me too. Because if I was in your shoes, I would I would I would be able to easily well, too. But uh, let go me, ahead. Let me start with how I approach this creatively. So finishing up the messengers, there were a couple of different offers to go and run a couple of things, uh, which which were exciting and interesting in different ways, but. But we're going to take me down the same sort of path, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and we have learned that yeah, Trey don't, Trey don't play that I'm way. Kind of resistant to it. So <laughs> so I went and uh, and and met on a number of things. But honestly, I I, I picked up a copy of the, the the pilot script for Rush Hour, which was written uh, by Bill Lawrence and and Blake McCormick. Bill Lawrence, of course, is the the creator of Scrubs and Cougar Town and yeah. three thousand other shows. And uh, and he and Blake uh, Blake had worked on Cougar Town as well, and and the two of them wrote this pilot. And to be a hundred percent bluntly honest, uh, when I picked it up and I saw the cover, I thought oh, Rush Hour. The first thing I thought was four years ago I went in with one of my former agents who'd become a producer to Arthur Sarkissian, who produced all of the Rush Hour movies, to pitch Rush Hour the series and to have a meeting about it. And uh, and before anything could happen, I wound up taking another job. And so it went on without me. And I remember walking out of that meeting thinking, somebody's going to land this gig sooner or later, and somebody hopefully will do a really good job with it. And so when I picked up the script, I picked it up out of curiosity to finally see, like, oh, let's see how it was done. By the time I put that script down, I was deeply in love with it <laughs> at a level that surprised me because I thought, okay, yeah, I know all the Rush Hour movies and I know what the beats will be, basically. I certainly know who the characters are. The way Bill and Blake rendered the script was so fresh and above and beyond anything else, so funny. Like, I don't remember the last time I read a script where I laughed out loud over a dozen times. Um that was certainly the case with Rush Hour, and yet what it did so masterfully was take th- that that again that CBS comfort zone of of a procedural, a crime procedural, and honored that spirit, but took it honestly. I think back to a model that that helped make CBS what it is back in the seventies and the eighties, where there were just sort of these classic fun cop action shows, right. And yeah, iconic shows with that were not, uh, you know, I think of when I was growing up, they weren't pretty boys. They no. were Cannon and Barnaby <laughs> Jones. You exactly. had your old guy and your fat guy. Exactly. And uh, but but there was they uh, was Rockford Files. CBS? Rockford Files was NBC, but yeah, uh, same NBC, kind but of it, thing. That that sensibility is what I thought of immediately, which yeah. is. They're, they're going to tell a story, and there's going to be a kind of a whodunit element to it, and there's going to be a crime element to it, but you've got this great character, and there's humor in it, and that's, yeah. that's critical. A hundred percent, and then they went and got Steve Franks, who who created the series Psych, and uh, and is not only you know incredibly talented and incredibly funny, but one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life, and so I... I, I, I and I rarely do this again because I probably because of the advertising experience. I like I know how to market myself, and I know how to handle these meetings when you go in, and I know you know how you got to keep some of the cards up and play a little mystery about yourself, and you know make yourself the shiny object in the room, all those things. But this is one of the only times that I can really remember in my career walking into somebody's office. In the first case, it was it was Bill Lawrence's, and and just laying my cards on the table and saying, I got to tell you. There's no show I would rather work on in this town than Rush Hour. 
And in part, it was because they had done such a masterful job on the pilot. But it was also because it was honoring the spirit of what's next and what's going to be new in my life and in my work. And for me, it was the opportunity to write comedy, which I've done in little bits and pieces all along in a lot of the stuff that I've done, but never at this level. I was going to say, there's nothing in your IMDb list right, right, that, right. that overtly says comedy. No, I mean, and I don't count the, you know, Timon and Pumbaa cartoons and that kind of stuff. Like, like you know, <laughs> well, we actually, can count it. No, but adult, sophisticated comedy, you know, right. I just hadn't done that. Right. And so that became super appealing to me. So I, I just put my cards on the table and I did it again with Steve Franks. And, uh, and man, I'm telling you, it's been, we're a month and a half into it now, working out of Manhattan Beach Studios, an amazingly talented group of writers from the drama world, from the comedy world, um, but just the most incredibly kind, respectful, good-hearted people, and, um, you know, and everybody seems to to uh, to subscribe to this notion that has been a big driving force in my life, which is, life's too short to hang with assholes, and... <laughs> And we all govern ourselves accordingly. And so I am shocked, actually, at the number of people I've talked to, even in here, uh, who are just really good people, with uh, the exception of Bob Cushell. Every <laughs> Well, we and, all know Bob. No, and I mean that. I, he's just a, he's a horrible person, <laughs> except for the fact that he has recommended that all you guys come in and do this. So now I owe him. Horrible slash lovable yes. slash horribly lovable. But see, but you see what he's done. He's yeah. recommended people for me to talk to, but he's going to hold it over me for the longest time. He just wanted us all to come in and clean up his mess. That's all. <laughs> but no, they, they, I'm just discovering what, what lovely, kind of gracious, giving, warm people are. I, 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 and I, I assume that it's like that because nobody wants to work with assholes. I, and, and maybe it used, there used to be a time where people, I talked with G, Jeff Greenstein about this a, no, a yeah. lot, which is there must have been a time, I know there was a time where ruling by the iron fist and making everybody tremble in their boots must have been more of the mode. Yeah. It just doesn't seem like people have the time or the patience or the energy to put up with that. Well, anymore. let's be clear. People process their egos in different ways, and so there are still those shows okay. where, you know, you probably sob yourself quietly to sleep at night. <laughs> um, but the truth is, uh, you know, look, we're, we are all, as writers, uh, wildly oversensitive, neurotic people, right? And we all sit too close to the fire, um, and all of us get burned in different ways in that process. And, and then some of us process the, those experiences differently. Some of us, I shouldn't say yes, some folks uh, will play to people's weaknesses instead of to their strengths. Uh, and some people will overcompensate for their own insecurities by, you know, taking full advantage of others. Uh, that's thankfully, I've, my experiences working with people like that have been few and far between. Um, and, and most certainly, uh, I would have to say, you know, M messengers was, was the single most positive creative experience I've had so far in my career, just, uh, just in terms of recognizing my ability to run a show. Uh, that was great, but rush hour is making me laugh every day. Yeah. And that's a great thing. And to be that's able to incredible, do. man. Yeah. And especially, you know, again, coming off the as much as I love the messengers, and as much as I'm proud of it, coming off the doom and gloom of, you know, the end times <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to get to two cops in a car making each other laugh. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm actually kind of happy to see Trey because you do seem like like a happy go lucky kind of guy. You <laughs> seem to be fairly well adjusted. If you had gone through seven seasons of, yeah, of that, it might not be the same story. I'm, I'm not really sure what we'd be seeing now. Yeah. All right. So we never really got around to though 
Let's go back, circle back around to the rush hour. Um, this is the ad guy version of defending the reboot of this in, uh, you know, three sentences or less. Uh, you know, uh, look, rush hour is a love letter to Los Angeles uh, and to cop action. Uh, it is Justin Hires who plays the uh, the uh, the Chris Tucker role and John Fu who you know picks up where uh, where Jackie Chan left off actually trained under Jackie Chan uh, so he's a bit of a martial arts master himself these are two tremendously talented actors um Wendy Malick we have in the cast as well who's a veteran of many many popular shows and and a number of other super talented individuals uh are going to help us tell this story which in some ways uh is is true certainly to the essence and the spirit of the of the successful movie franchise you know these are these are uh, this is a, a wisecracking Los Angeles cop who is, you know, reluctantly and begrudgingly stuck with uh, a visiting Hong Kong detective. These two men could not be any more different in their lives and in their mental and emotional makeup. Um, uh, but they also complement each other in the most wonderful yin yang ways. And and you get to play all of that great fish out of water humor. You also get for me, you know, especially as someone who's about to celebrate 30 years in LA, it's nice to revisit what it means to just arrive here and, and, and to have to sort of try and wrap your head around this place. Yeah. I, and I don't know that I see that many shows that actually present Los Angeles in a way that I recognize. And that's one of my favorite aspects of this show is that we are absolutely embracing Los Angeles as a living, breathing, beautiful slash repellent character <laughs> in this series. And and I always say, like every to, to people who visit Los Angeles, everything you can love about Los Angeles, and there are millions of things to love about here, this place, you can also hate depending on the day mm-hmm. and the traffic patterns. Yeah. Um, and it might be the exact same thing from yeah, day to day. Yeah. yeah, so it's fun to re-explore that through character. It's fun, frankly, just to shoot a show in Los Angeles um, you know, and not have to fake it. You know, those six years on CSI New York, we covered a lot of palm trees, and 98% <laughs> of that show was shot here. They, they, uh, there was a scene shot over here at the at the Sherman Oaks yeah. Gallery. Yeah. We are just talking about near the fountain. Yeah. Everybody's wearing overcoats yeah. and earmuffs. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> true nightmare for everyone involved. But, but yeah, we get to By own... the way, hallelujah for actually shooting something here yeah. on location in Los Angeles. We're, sh- we're not just shooting here. We are embracing it. We are owning it. We are featuring it. We are going back to, you know, every iconic uh, location you can imagine in Los Angeles, but we're coming at it from a different angle. Uh, we're trying to teach people new things about these places right. through this character that... Uh, that John Fu is playing uh, Detective Lee. And, and it's so it's it's really, I think people are going to enjoy it wildly for a couple of reasons. One, it will be true to the spirit of the films that they enjoyed. Uh, two, it will scratch that, you know, uh, that constant CBS itch for, you know, a procedural, uh, a, a, a question mark over a body or over a crime that has to be solved that will be a twisted, fun puzzle, uh, not just for the audience to solve, but then to watch these two, you know, uh, uh, completely wildly, wonderfully mismatched detectives try and and solve for them. It's I think I think people are going to thoroughly enjoy this one. Well, the the, the trailer looks great. It, it, it is the quintessential buddy 
you know, thing. Yeah. And I, it, it really does work as a concept. And I, I'm only giving you a hard time just because I know the rest of the world's going to give you guys but a hard you know time what? until You're, the thing shows up. It's interesting, though, Larry, because I just read an article, I think, in the New York Times about um, why so much hit television right now makes you feel so bad. And and they're mostly talking about a lot of the cable stuff, right. uh, you know, many of which I watch and love I do myself too. as a viewer. But everything's so dark. Everything is so dark. You were talking so about depressing. Los Angeles. Oh, my God. If I lived in the Los Angeles that True Detective is in right <laughs> you now. You moved away three episodes oh, no, ago. No, I would have killed myself. <laughs> oh, my God. It's, I mean, Mad Max looks cheerier That's than that Los Angeles. Correct. And there's, look, cow. there's a place for all of that stuff. Sure. And, and I am, I, I'm certainly not going to throw rocks at, 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 you know, beautifully executed dramas. But, but I also feel like, and I, and I, this may be another takeaway I got from the messengers because in spite of the doom and gloom backdrop of revelation, it was ultimately a series about hope mm-hmm. and, uh, and about how strangers, you know, band together and rise above, uh, the ugliness and the darkness. And, and so not to sound too Pollyanna about it, but, uh, I think coming away from that made me desire, writing more of that. And, um, and so rush hour is absolutely scratching that itch for me. I mean, it's, it's fun. It's funny. It's a ride. You know, you're going to be able to tune it at any time and enjoy yourself immensely. Uh, and you're not going to, you know, look, I, again, not to cast aspersions. I love the walking dead. I love the way it's written. I love the way it's performed. I love the production design. I love everything about that. But when I watch it, I feel like, crap on toast no, no. every time before Dude, I go to bed. I I I'm, am binge-watching it right now yeah. because I, I've never seen an episode and I knew I needed to watch it, but my wife was never going to put up with the gore. Yeah, so I'm yeah. actually in a place now, right now where I can binge-watch it a couple of days a week. Yeah, right. And I, I just realized as we've been talking, because I've been really kind of depressed the last couple of days with absolutely no reason to be and i realize it's because i've been watching like two of those a night before i go to bed it is so bleak it It oh it's a bummer and so sophia poor little cute little sophia Sophia. yeah i just so yeah yeah, rush hour is not going to make you feel that way larry (laughs) okay thank you it's going to make you actually enjoy yourself for 42 minutes and uh and then you know I need some light at the end of the tunnel, Trey. That's what you want to then watch. All right. Well, then please tell me as a USC guy that at some point in one of the multiple seasons of uh, Rush Hour that there will be something at the original Tommy's at Beverly and Rampart. That's a great idea. I will make sure we add that to our list. Very picturesque. We're already talking about ways to shoot at SC because it is so film friendly there. And I know that from from multiple episodes of of CSI. And every every, uh, every car commercial (laughs) on television. Exactly. But uh, Tommy's, that's a good call. Oh, come on. Because we talk a lot about, well, we talk a lot about, too, about uh, among their many differences, you know, are are the culinary differences between Carter and Lee. Well, you know, look, if he's got Gotta show him what a double chili cheese exactly. really looks like, and then he's got to deal with the aftermath in a stakeout later. So <laughs> that's right when they're stuck uh. in the car. There's no seats. You got to stand there at that's the thing. Right. Get a thousand napkins. That's right. Okay, you can take that with you. Okay, I'm giving you, you that for free, All right, well. and you can pay me back by uh, when you need a quintessential LA disc jockey. On there the radio. you go. 100%. Oh my god! See, there's one of those things about LA you hate. I just pitched myself. No, to can, you. you know what? Let's can we geek out on radio for just one second? Absolutely. I don't know when we're. I didn't even know when we started recording. So I. I don't know when we're done. Um, uh, okay. We haven't started recording okay. yet. <laughs> so the word, I'll great. do it now. Perfect. This was all warm up. 
All right, so here's here's my LA radio geek out. So I do. Um, uh, uh, I'll go. I'll go all the way back to when I was a kid growing up in Tulsa, and there was a local AM radio station called KAKC, and it's when I first discovered my love for radio. I flipped on KAKC, and immediately, even as a you know whatever I was ten, eleven, twelve year old, I could tell it didn't feel of Tulsa. It felt like it was almost too cool for Tulsa. And I say that with great love. Like my, my Tulsa friends listening right now, if there are any are throwing things, but like <laughs> I, I love where I grew up. Right. But too, KKC, too slick probably. KKC was like, it was perfect. It, yeah. had, it had these amazing personalities, on-air personalities. It had a great top 40 playlist, but it had these jingles, yeah. which were instantly memorable and that I almost enjoyed listening to as much as all the rest of it. Okay. I knew nothing about its origins. Um, but one of the disc jockeys at KAKC uh, is a, another super talented voiceover uh, artist here in Los Angeles, a guy named Bo Weaver. And uh, and he had been a jock on KAKC. And, and, you know, years later, I wound up producing radio commercials with Bo and we became friends. He's the one that finally explained to me why KAKC sounded the way it did. And it's because it was born of uh, KHJ. Mm-hmm. So KHJ, I'm sure you know the story of here in Los Angeles, was a floundering station in the 60s. And then this young uh, uh, program director came in and uh, with his partner sort of came up with this concept of boss radio and reinvented KHJ. And part of boss radio was these jingles. Yeah. And the jingles were done by a guy named Johnny Mann. So I'm telling you stuff you already right. know, but Johnny maybe Man's it's singer. fascinating for at least one or two of your listeners. <laughs> no, no, it's great. So Johnny Mann was a Grammy-winning composer, and he he was and he had his own television series, and he was also the band leader uh, for what's his name, Joey Bishop, very accomplished musician. But the Johnny Mann singers were brought in to do the original KHJ jingles, and it became such a part of the sonic identity of Boss Radio that then it was imported across the country and every major market had its own Boss Radio station and they all had the Johnny Man jingles. And then at a certain point when that became wildly successful, they decided to try the same format in mid-sized markets. And that's when KKC got its Johnny Man jingles and the Boss Radio format. That's why it sounded too cool for Tulsa. I just didn't understand <laughs> it at the time. All right, so long story, even longer. I'm at CSI New York, and 15 years ago this December, I started a, a podcast of my own, which is a music podcast. Uh, it's just a, it's it's a compilation of my favorite songs of every year, and uh, and people had told me over the years, you know, you should you should get a you should get jingles, and I would always joke, well, I would never have jingles unless they could be Johnny Man jingles because the, those are the only jingles that I care about. And by the way, if you if you live in L.A., you can still hear his work every day on K-Earth. You know, that whole K-Earth 101, those, that's the Johnny Man singers. 93 KHJ. That's exactly right. Yep. So um, so I'm in my last year at CSI New York, and uh, and my assistant comes in one day, and he'd heard me say, make this Johnny Man comment a couple of times. So he comes in one day, and he puts down a piece of paper on the desk, and it's got an email address. I say, what's this? He says, it's Johnny Man's email address. I didn't even know the man was still alive. So I sit down and I write this unabashed fan letter to Johnny Mann, a man I've never met, doesn't know me from Adam. And I basically say all of that. You don't know me from Adam. But when I grew up as a kid, I listened to KKC. It had your jingles. I didn't even know they were your jingles, but they are responsible in large part for the beginning of my long, lifelong love affair with radio. 
So I just wanted to say thank you for those jingles, and I still enjoy listening to K-Earth jingles every, every day because of that. My phone rings a couple days later, and God bless him, Johnny Mann, who has since passed but then was in his 80s, calls me up and says, are you the man who sent me this email? And just, you know, is the sweetest man, says, no one has ever taken the time to send me, you know, a, a letter like that. And I just wanted to thank you. You know, I've retired. He lived down in, uh, in, in South Carolina with his wife, Betty, of many years. And basically, he at, 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 we had this lovely conversation just about radio. And at the end of it, he says, well, listen, how can I repay your kindness? And I said, well, you just did. We just, I got to have a conversation with Johnny Mann. He said, no, well, listen, you know, well, you mentioned you do a podcast. How, how would you like some jingles for that podcast? And I, I blushed, literally. I said, well, I, that's really sweet, but, you know, you're, you're retired and you, you know, you, he said, well, but every once in a while, station groups will call me up and they, they want to, they you know, have me do some jingle work. And if I can get enough of them together, maybe I could piggyback you onto the back of one of those sessions. So I humbly said yes, but I thought that, well, that's the end of it. I'll never. Then over the course of a year, Johnny would call me when he would see a CSI New York that he liked or see something I'd written. And he was always so sweet, so kind and flattering. Suddenly in November, he calls me up and says, well, you still want those jingles? I said, what what do you mean? He said, well, I got got a session time booked at Ricky Skagg's studio in Nashville. I'm going to be doing some jingles for a a station group, and I thought maybe I could piggyback you on. You wanted the jingles? I said, yes, but now, like, I'm privately terrified because I can't afford Johnny Man jingles. Like, I I don't even – I wouldn't begin to know what's involved with that. So I I basically say that. I said, gosh, this is so kind of you to offer, but, you know, this is your livelihood, Johnny, and the podcast is a hobby for me, and I really, I'm sure I can't afford your jingles. He says, well, you've been so kind. How about about if I charge you the 93 KHJ price, which was, like, ridiculous. And long story short, I got Johnny Man jingles for my podcast. (laughs) So in a way that you can only appreciate someone who's been in radio and is a, a successful voiceover person like yourself, there is no greater narcissistic pleasure. <laughs> like on the worst days, I will just get in my car and just play those jingles <laughs> just to hear 11 people sing my name. Like it is the greatest feeling ever. So oh, there's my radio geek out story. That's amazing. Yeah. What, could, would you want to plug the podcast? Real quick? Uh, it's called Tradio. And, and uh, you know, it's it's something that it's a complete labor of love. I hesitate to even bring it up in the in the presence of someone who oh, has a legitimate whatever. podcast like yourself. But, whatever. Uh, that's yeah. great. Oh, man. Anyway. All right. Well, geez. Well, I, I, I have jingle envy. Definitely. Well, we started a radio. I thought we should come back to Absolutely. radio. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, Trey, it, it's been a pleasure, man. I, I It's just a delight talking to you. I, I hope that Rush Hour is a huge hit for you guys. I have a feeling it's going to be fine. Thank you very, <laughs> very much. I it's really appreciate that, Larry. It will be fun for everybody. But uh, When does it debut? Uh, we're supposed to debut in January. Uh, oh, what? Uh, we don't have, well, it's a mid-season, uh, ah. so it'll be January 2016, unless, and this is always possible, they move us up earlier. Yeah. There have been certain rumblings about that. Yeah, because we're... it looks strong and, uh, okay, okay. crossing my fingers. We shall Because, see. frankly, I need something to get me out of my walking <laughs> dead malaise. You might want to give that a, a little bit of a break. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. Trey, thanks a Thank lot. Thank you man. very much, Larry. It's been a pleasure. Get a monkey. Get a monkey.
Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of colors starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.